Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. Today, I am honored to have Tom Fronsek. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for taking the time out of your morning and uh, sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us. So Tom is a licensed social work psychotherapist. Um, He's also the director of the mental health services at Evergreen Health and a lifestyle medicine expert. And he just, you know, his clients some amazing stuff. And I met Tom at Plantstock and just was instantly in awe of everything that he does. So um, I, let's start with you. So tell us how you came around to finding you know, a whole foods plant-based diet, lifestyle. Where did this all begin in your life? Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. And um, so as so many times, who we are today happens to be the product of so many of our earlier life experiences, right? Right. So back in the late 90s, I actually had an injury at the gym Uh, to my back. I had a disc that herniated and did physical therapy and all the things that you would do to hope this would resolve. And it just didn't. It got worse. Um, And I ended up needing to go to have surgery, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, while they sent me to physical therapy, I noticed that all these stretching exercises really caused me to feel very relaxed and calm. And I liked the way that that felt. That led me to yoga classes. And I found that I really fell in love with yoga. And then suddenly they introduced this notion about taking a deep breath and breathing and watching how the world can change. And so from there, I ended up saying, I could do this. And so I took yoga teacher training. And so you know how these things work. (laughs) When you go to these events, these yoga conferences and uh, wellness settings and trainings, they offer a lot of really healthy foods, most of them plant-based. And so you're sitting at a community table with a lot of other people and you're learning things about the role of nutrition and health around you know, what we eat and how we eat and how that impacts the environment. Um, and of course, animal welfare. So that just led me more and more into this field of lifestyle medicine. I'm a licensed social work therapist. I've been in this field for 31 years. I live now in Buffalo, New York, and so prior to this, as I mentioned at Plantstock, I lived in Rhode Island. It was just 45 minutes from Boston, and I was fortunate enough to meet a group of psychotherapists that integrated mindfulness and psychotherapy, and so I did training up there at the Institute of Mindfulness and Psychotherapy in Boston, New York, to integrate all these concepts, mindfulness, psychotherapy, bringing yoga, which they're using more and more now in the treatment of trauma. Um, Bessel van der Kolk up in Boston was a big one for introducing this to the field. So you can just see over time how it all just came to be. In 2009, I did the Certificate in Plant-Based Nutrition through the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies. And uh, yeah, and then one day I end up at Plant Stock and we meet and just have this really nice experience just learning from all these. That was, that was quite an exceptional event. Yeah. It, it was an amazing. And we had actually met virtually through Instagram. Right. First. Instagram so, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And so that has really been, this last year has been accelerated for me meeting people in person who I've met through Facebook or Instagram. And it's been awesome. Like so thankful for social media for that. But I really am intrigued with the practice of mindfulness 
Can you tell us, so you hear a lot about this. So you teach people this. Can you tell us what that is, how people can incorporate that in their lives and the benefits? Because, you know, there's a lot of it, like, is this meditation? Is this prayer? What is it exactly? Right, right. And, you know, it can be both and. And I think that's what this whole meditation, some of the more Eastern philosophies teach us. Things can be both and at the same time. So I came to it through the doorway of uh, health, where some people might come to it more through it, through spirituality and, and prayer. Mindfulness is really just focused attention in the present moment where you let go of any judgments, let go of any expectations, and work towards making peace with what is in this present moment. I think there's some misconceptions out there that people think, oh, it's about blanking your mind, um, you know, and just attaining this sense of Zen. And that's not always the case at all. If anything, particularly, and I suspect we'll get into some of this, as I'm sitting with psychotherapy patients, to help them just take a moment of stillness, it's really just focused attention and just pay attention to whatever's present for them in that moment. And I might ask them to bring attention to what are their thoughts, what are their feelings, their body sensations, muscle tension, uh, the quality of their breath, if it's a shorter breath from the chest or a deeper breath from the diaphragm, and just come into an authentic sense of presence in this moment. And so as you can appreciate, somebody could experience the full range of emotions based on what's present for them in that moment. So, yeah, it's about, it's about stillness, it's about presence, and yeah, just increased awareness. And so, it, it's, a, it's a training, Lori. It's a training and focused attention. And with anything, just like a muscle that we're building, a new way of working with like lifestyle medicine, for example, that we're hoping that podcasts such as these, you know, influence other physicians out there and healthcare professionals. It's a practice. And so it's not about perfection. It's just stopping and pausing and just noticing. Mm-hmm. It's a nice way to help folks identify habits and then break habits. And I think that's a lot of the work that I do, frankly, as a psychotherapist, is really bringing people into relationship, not just with myself in that office, but in relationship with themselves and what's present for them. So that when they notice what's going on for them or, you know, decisions, you know, do I eat that extra piece of chocolate or do I not? Just stop and pause and get present to what's true for you in that moment. Now, you can do what you've always done because this is America. (laughs) You can have that chocolate if you want. Or you can stop and pause, take a breath, mindfulness. And then that opens up some space, some freedom, if you will to be able to make a different kind of decision. And once people begin practicing, as you know, these different habits and patterns, you're creating new neural pathways in the brain, and suddenly this becomes the new norm. Mm. So thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. I use mindfulness a lot in the work that I do. Mm. I really like how you describe that as a relationship with ourself. Because I think we walk around and now, when we're distracted by cell phones and all these different devices, that we're just a reactionary, right? We, we respond to things that are happening to us, and we forget that we actually have a, a brain that can think and participate in the moment, right? So 
almost, you know, I think I try to do that when, especially like when I'm interviewing someone, I try not to be the type of individual who's thinking, oh, I'm going to ask this next question. I mean, I'm, I'm formulating some thoughts with that, but I want to be able to respond to what they're saying in a genuine way and saying, this is just kind of the, you know, what is this going to birth? What type of conversation? But I want to be mindful of our conversation. And I think we don't do that in, in present United States right now. And I will tell you, I think the overwhelming majority of symptoms that I see people come in with depression, anxiety, a lot of adjustment type issues in their lives. Um, so many of them really disconnection is at the root disconnection mm -hmm. from themselves or what they're feeling and they're just acting on empty habit. You know, so many times people are doing what they're doing today because it's what they did yesterday. It's what they did the day before. There's not a sense of conscious presence. And if I'm disconnected from myself, how can I be connected to you or the other significant or important people in my lives? And I'll tell you, I truly believe it's the sense of disconnection that people feel that plays into these symptoms of depression, anxiety, um, because we are social creatures, our brain is designed for connection. Um, so I often tell a story, you know, if, if you or I were a gazelle out on the plains in Africa and we're all eating and enjoying ourselves and suddenly, you know, the other animals in the herd sense or smell a, a predator coming, they all take off. But maybe I'm just enjoying my food and my head is down and drawing. And suddenly I look up and everybody's gone. A sense of disconnection or dread comes up and that mm -hmm. creates panic, that creates anxiety. But once I can find my herd, once I'm connected again, my shoulders relax, I can breathe. Connection heals. And I really think that is so important in the work that we do. Yeah, I, I like that analogy that you were sharing. You know, it's almost like the little kid that is um, at lunch and they usually sit and eat with their friends and now their friends aren't partaking with them anymore. And they feel, they do, they feel that disconnection. You feel um, abandoned and isolated. But then there's a way you, I mean, with the positive psychology, which I'm really diving into now, which is fascinating, it's a matter of rechanging that story that you're telling yourself. You know, the stories that we tell ourselves will change how we perceive that. Well, maybe those kids are all on the soccer team and that's why they're sitting there and they're having me. It's not that they're rejecting me. It's a matter of how am I looking at the current situation? I don't know that. Yeah, I agree. It's that it is, it is a disconnectedness. I like that word. I haven't really thought of it that way before. That's really cool. So when you have someone come in and let's say they do have depression or anxiety, what is the first steps that you do on that road to healing and teaching mindfulness? I mean, are there certain exercises that you give everyone? Are you just talking to them and their individual capabilities? I mean, what, what exactly do you do or how do you assess that? Sure, that's a great question. So, you know, no different than you. Before we're going to provide any sort of treatment, we're going to do a thorough assessment. So I want to check all the various life areas uh, with an individual. I refer to that as a psychosocial assessment, getting all kinds of background on the individual, um, past, present. I'm also very curious about how long the symptoms have been present. And I might ask the question, why now? You know, mm -hmm. this depression, this anxiety, why not six months ago? Why not two and a half years from now? Why now? Because I'm looking for what is it that the patient is attributing this to? 
what is the story that they're creating basically mm-hmm. about their symptoms? Mm-hmm. Because I want to be able to utilize that, right? In the work that I do, that's going to help me decide where do I go with this? I'm paying attention. Is it an internal locus of control that I think it's something about myself? You know, there's something wrong with me uh, that the client may be feeling, or is the client attributing it to something else outside of them? That's going to be important as far as locus of control. Like, does a patient feel that they have the ability to be able to affect change, or do they just feel this thing is happening to them and they are a helpless, you know, victim? Mm. So, do you find that it's easier to? help people who feel it's like an internal locus of control or an external, which is it easier for people to overcome? Yeah. So I think certainly internal because that puts the person mm-hmm. in a powerful position so they can make a change. And uh, if they believe it's external, that's when I need to begin doing some work and approach the intervention in a different way. Mm-hmm. I suspect you, we talked about this a little bit. You're aware of the stages of change, this trans theoretical model. When I lived in Rhode Island, uh, James Prochaska was up there. James Prochaska is a psychologist from the University of Rhode Island. He, Norcross de Clementi, came up with this trend, this theoretical, or this stage of change model. And um, so basically they recognize that change happens over a continuum, uh, a process. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, to so the work that Dean Ornish has done about the spectrum, right? People change mm-hmm. in different ways. And so I'm paying attention to where is the person in this change process. If they feel that it's like not a problem, uh, then I'm going to intervene in one particular way. We might say that person is pre-contemplative. If they're contemplative, they're thinking about, I do want to make a change. I'm not certain if I want to make this change. Uh, ambivalent, we would call that. Uh, then I'm going to intervene in a different way. Some people come in and they're ready for action. They're, they're prepared. And uh, so there's a whole process. So I think I'm sensing is what is it that the person's attributing the issue to? And then I'm trying to think, where are they in the stage of change? So I'm staging the patient at the same time. And then those two things are going to influence my interventions. You know, there's other social factors too, right? Who are the supports uh, in your environment? You might not feel that you have the resources inside but are there people in the world around you? And these could be, you know, family, friends, partners, a teacher, a mentor. Um, who are those nurturing, encouraging forces in your life? Mm. You know, and it could be somebody living or deceased. Maybe there was a grandmother that I had that was a strong influence or strong resource for me, always nurturing, encouraging, a true cheerleader. So I might stop and pause and ask that person if they'd like to do some inner work or mindfulness. You know, it depends how someone reacts to that word or not. I might (laughs) phrase it in different ways, but, you know, connect with that energy of your grandmother uh, or your dog that lights up when you walk in the room, someone that just loves and cares about you and believes in you. And so really those resources can be somebody living or deceased, uh, human or animal. And just helping that person think or see themselves through that person's eyes. I could go on and on about this, but uh, yeah, those are some of the interventions that I'll do. I'll have people write letters from somebody who's deceased to themselves. You know, uh, a a grandmother, my grandmother, dear Tom, 
I have always believed in you. I know what you are capable of. You can do this. I know it's going to be hard, but I believe in you. Remember when you did X, Y, and Z. So just a letter of encouragement from somebody who's deceased. That could be a strong resource for somebody. So you're getting at important things, just about motivation. and But it, it's so much bigger than that, isn't it? Yeah. It's all the so. All the good stuff. I really like that, that, you know, because my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was a big influence in my life. <clears throat> and she, yeah. And, you know, when I think back of times uh, of our times together, you're exactly right. Those memories bring emotion. And she used to use, this is funny, um, mentholatum every single night, right? So I when I would go stay with her during the summers, so anytime I smell that mentholate or menthol, it's yeah. like instant, instant memories of my grandmother and you get a warm, fuzzy feeling. So I like that because you're you're allowing them, you're also giving them a tool to um, kind of like an anchor, right? So that they can go back to in times of struggle that they can go back and remember, okay, this is where I'm at. I'm in control. And this is my mindfulness practice or whatever. So I really like how you said that. That's really, that's cool. Well, thank you so much. And your mentholatum story just reminded me, my grandmother used to have this lilac bush right by her house. And now when I smell lilac, it just brings me right back, just like the mentholatum. And it's, it creates an experience, doesn't it? Right. Right. And, you know, neuropsychology is telling us there's a particular brain chemistry around anxiety. There's a particular brain chemistry around joy or pleasure. And so if we can help people notice where is the focus of their attention and then shift the focus of their attention, we want to give them, teach them the skills to be able to just notice where you're at and then, you know, decide if it's going to serve you to continue to be in that mind state, that focus. And if not, or if it's causing pain, stress, anxiety, then to be able to shift the focus of their attention to something else. Mm. That's what mindfulness does. It gives people the power and the freedom to just move from where they're at. Now, it doesn't necessarily change what might be going on for that person in the moment, but it can change their experience in the moment and give them a little space to figure out how am I going to deal with this. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So it's almost like, let's say if you have a, a bad habit of chewing your nails or, you know, I, I don't know, picking at something. If you're mindful of it, then you can choose to continue it, you know, move yourself to a different location, get up, do something. I mean, you're just, you're being mindful of what you're doing. You're not just reacting, but that gives you a choice. You can continue to do that or you continue to walk, you know, a do something different or react differently. I mean, I guess you could also, if you don't have those positive influences in your life, you could also create one, right? Or remember a time that you did feel positive for yourself. Absolutely. And you know, some people come and they might, they may be, their their faith, their spirit, their religion is very important to them. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that's a strong resource we talked about uh, or in some of your writings. And I've always been impressed by that. And, you know, so their connection with their higher power, their God, whatever it is they choose to call that energy, just spirit, the universe. Um, Yeah. Sometimes in some of the meditation circles, when people can feel lonely or isolated, the language that you'll hear is, you are much more than just this wave. You are part of the larger ocean. Mm. Right. There is this sense of common humanity. 
The truth is life is hard. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Truth, life, life is hard. Is, life. Okay, life is hard sometimes. I mean, it is for the clients, the patients that we see. Truth be told, it's hard for me sometimes. Maybe it's hard for you once in a while. You know, the, the lady next door, she probably has some difficulties as well. We all struggle. We all have stresses. We all suffer in our own ways. And there's no hierarchy to that suffering. <laughs> you know, just because we may sit there or someone else may hear what we're talking about and say, oh, that's nothing. But to me or to that client, it is. And so another part of the work then that I'd love to let you know that I bring in also is self-compassion mm. because people can really be pretty hard on themselves at times. And, you know, when we talk about behavior change, this can be a minefield. <laughs> it can be just another way for people to shame themselves. You know, mm. I slipped, I relapsed, I went back to eating the desserts or, you know, or back to smoking or back to drinking or whatever it might be for that person, any, any of the behaviors. And to just stop and pause and know that's part of a learning process for anybody and to just bring some kindness to yourself to say, look at that was difficult. Self-compassion has three components to it. It has just the mindful awareness, number one, of what's going on. I'm feeling stressed right now. I'm suffering. I'm upset. It brings that sense of uh, care or attention, uh, the kind of care or compassion that you might extend to one of your children or a friend uh, or an animal that's hurt. Like, oh, you poor thing, come here, it'll be okay. You can get through this. I know it's hard. You're not alone. I'll be with you. You know, it's hard for all of us sometimes. And just those compassionate ways that you would speak to another, you take that and just bring that back to yourself. So mindfulness, the ability to number one, notice what's going on, stop, pause, take a few breaths. And then literally I put my hand on my heart, just like, it's okay, you can do this. You'll get through this. And then just this notion, this third notion that there's a sense of common humanity. We all struggle from time to time, you know? It's, but to bring it back to the earlier part of our conversation, you don't need to struggle or suffer in isolation. You know, if somebody's grieving, there's a particular loss. We'll never know what that is like for that particular individual, but we can listen to their story. And they don't have to be alone with that. They don't have to be isolated. And so really so much of the work, as I said earlier, is bringing people back into connection with themselves, what's going on with them in that moment, and then connection with others. So you have a very calming voice and a very calming presence and (laughs) so i think i i would assume your practice is very full and it must be a fulfilling thing that you do um wow so thank you you're welcome and you know what because it aligns with what's true for me Mm. There's not a distinction between what we do for, quote, work and just who we are as human beings out in this world. Number one, it doesn't feel like work, does it? And there's, there's just not a distinction when we walk the talk. And that's what we help our clients do, too, to align with what they're thinking and feeling that their behaviors are, you know, in align with that. Mm. It, it creates much less stress for them, <laughs> for any of us. 
So have you found that using the mindfulness practices, the inner work, what happens is people, as they deal with the, the mental components, their spiritual, you know, you talk about the higher power for me is, is, is God and, and Christ, you know, for me, as far as, do you find that the lifestyle choices then begin to align with that as well? Or, I mean, how does that, have, how have you noticed that or have you seen that change at all? Yeah. Uh, so you've heard of this social contagion theory yeah. that as we associate with people that are, you know, let's say eating more healthily or exercising, the likelihood of us attaining those behaviors or, and then maintaining them are going to increase versus if we don't. So I, I think it certainly does make a difference. The research backs us up that who you associate with or who you connect with does make a difference as far as maintaining uh, behaviors and moving towards your particular goal. Um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but... Yeah, do you find that it's easier as people are walking this path of mindfulness, becoming more present in the moment, you know, dealing with, you know, uh, stresses, depression, anxiety, as they become more proficient in that mindfulness practice, do you find that their lifestyle habits begin to change, that they're more mindful of, wow, maybe I shouldn't be eating, you know, three Whoppers a day? and do you, or, or do you find that they also need kind of an awakening to that by education? Or, I mean, do you find that it's a natural progression or is there some also work that has to be done to teach people what is actual factual, what is actual good lifestyle? Or is it just something that humans naturally flow to? I'm just curious what you have found. Yeah, my experience shows me that it's really a combination of the two, that they really do need the education. You know, as well as I, right now, people are confused around health, nutrition. You know, you already know the stories. (laughs) You know, Time Magazine, the whole butter is back thing. People are so confused. Do I, don't I, high carb, low carb? It is so confusing out there. And so I think we have to acknowledge that people are coming in when they meet with us and they are confused, they are uncertain, to acknowledge that, to validate it, and then just to redirect them to the science and here's the evidence. Um, Yeah, I I think giving them that information is important. And we all have to make a decision about who are we going to pay attention to? Because there's so many folks out there, there's so many different voices and so many disparate messages you have to make a decision like who are the folks that you're going to trust and pay attention to that's how i handle it to be quite honest you know uh, a lot of these lifestyle medicine doctors that we all follow um, and yourself is included in that you know there's a particular i'm also part of this american college of lifestyle medicine and so i really trust in this message and this is where i'm going to focus my attention and the other things i just see as distractions so I'm right. helping the person to be able to make decisions about what do you pay attention to? When you hear so many different messages throughout the day, how do you make decisions about what you're choosing to pay attention to? You know, you, I, we may, our listeners, they may have people in their lives, uh, you know, this whole red state, blue state <laughs> sort of thing. You know, there's, there's really good even well-educated and well-meaning people that just have very different views and opinions out there. So I don't want to find somebody necessarily wrong, but I want to be able to make a decision whether I'm going to pay attention and align with this side or this side or 
And so the work for me when I'm sitting with a client is really come to a truth that is honest for yourself based on the information that you're taking in from trusted people outside of yourself. So summary of that, yes, education matters. If I can help them, you can help them feel better about themselves, people are more likely to achieve and sustain behaviors that are going to be in service of themselves. You know, it, that's funny you brought up the politics because I, I kind of I heard this one analogy and it was kind of it was kind of cool. Um, so I need to, I tend to be more conservative leaning in my values and my actions, my my thought on you know markets and such. But I'm very liberal leaning in my social aspects as far as taking care of the poor, plant based diet, you know, being vegan, environmental impacts. So what's funny is that you know it's 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 kind of like you want to, we need a people who can bridge that gap. So, cause we need these people who are looking at our social welfare, right. And how we can take care of vulnerable populations. We also need to be cognizant of, well, what's the best way to fund those programs? What's the best way to run a free society, a democratic society that allows us to keep freedoms and do that. So I think we have to be very careful that we don't swing too far one or the other, but there are people who are listening to both sides that we don't silo ourselves into this hole. And then, you know, like the gazelle that didn't know everyone ran off, <laughs> he's yeah. here alone. You know, so it's, it's exactly how I feel like we need to do. We need to take the both best from both sides. For example, you know, what I really just fascinated with right now is I love lifestyle medicine. I love the plant-based diet, but there's more to it than just laying this information in front of someone and saying, here, read this book. Here's the science and I'll go do it. But there's a whole part of habit formation. There's a whole, you know, how do I cook this way? But then there's this positive psychology, this mindfulness that I think is the missing part in a physician's practice or just, you know, humans in general, honestly, that will allow us to sustain these lifestyle changes because, and then they'll just feed upon each other, right? Good food, exercise, communications, yeah. social networks. And then you have what I love about physicians is that we are, you know, the social contagion theory, which I truly believe, um, we're in a very important role where we will have influence on many people. And if we can get enough physicians who are doing this in a good way, we could actually have some really cool, amazing changes, I think. Um, you know, call me an optimist, but that's okay. Uh, optimists live longer. And so <laughs> let's, let's, uh, I'll just keep that up, you know, but I mean, I think that was a really brilliant uh, thought there that you had with the red states and the blue states. That's really cool. Do you have a particular... T. Colin Campbell story? always said this is going to be from the bottom up, didn't he? T. Colin Campbell oh. said it's always going to be moving from the bottom up. Yep. You, you have to make it bottom up unless you just have a in a unique situation, you have a, uh, enough of, I think, I think if you have a movement that's running and you have someone elected to a high office that has enough power and support that those two things can converge, but usually, yes, these movements have to start from the, the bottom up social movements. And from the, you know, some of the stuff that I've been hearing recently, you know, five to 8% of the population in the United States is vegan or vegetarian, which is up from 3%. That was that, I can't remember where I was, I was that I heard that recently. And that, you know, Israel's moved more towards like 20% of plant-based. That's really awesome. I mean, so I knew Israel was high 
but I didn't realize it had moved. Last I had heard was 13%. So there is this movement of, you know, I think consciousness with what we're feeding, eating and doing to the environment. So that's amazing. So do you have a particular, like maybe a story of a patient that you've seen just this have some radical changes or some type, you know, maybe a certain types of patients that have moved? Cause I know you're a therapist, you can't give specifics, but you know, just some generalities of what you've seen that were very powerful um, as far as people taking in how you practice and teach people this and have some amazing outcomes. Thank you. When I think of lifestyle medicine, I think of these different pillars, nutrition, exercise, stress management, social support, obviously looking at sleep, smoking behaviors are important. Um, and, you know, I think those of us who lean in this direction are just mindful of just the totality of all these, these pillars, if you will. Um, you know, we, we ask questions about these things. So I had a 17-year-old a, a number of years ago that came to me, mother brought this uh, adolescent to me uh, because uh, he was having difficulty in school, depressed, problems with attention. And there were some symptoms of a mild depression there. And I, I maybe mild to moderate, depending on uh, the particular issue that he was talking about. Um, and I, I, I can assure you that if this person went to a psychiatrist, it's very likely they may have started one of these uh, antidepressants, you know, like a Zoloft or something like this. Um, and I stopped and said, well, we could do that. <laughs> that certainly is an option. I want to make sure you know that that would be one of your options. But let's take a look at what else is going on in your life. So I started doing an assessment around nutrition, exercise, stress management, social support. And it turns out that this young adult was not eating when he got up first thing in the morning. And his first meal of the day would have been at lunchtime at school. And I said, okay, at school, I already imagined what the response might be. And I said, so what would your lunch be? Well, a piece of pizza and a can of soda. And I thought, okay, <laughs> there we go. Number one, you don't have enough fuel. You don't have enough energy. How are you going to pay attention, right? Uh, you're certainly not getting your nutrient needs met with that particular diet, let alone micronutrients. So I said, would you like to try an experiment? And this is how I introduce it. I said, would you like to just try an experiment? I want to empower a younger adult to be able to do something on his or her own versus one more person older, maybe their parents' age, telling them what to do. I said, so if you want, you could do an experiment. Why don't you try just having breakfast first thing in the morning? Maybe something simple, oatmeal, you know? Um, and, and he was open to it. So he did, he started having breakfast the first thing in the morning. I saw him a couple weeks later. He said, can I tell you something? He said, I feel better. Mm -hmm. There was no magic there, but there was stopping and noticing what was going on. You know, how he was feeding, fueling himself and his body. And, and he was the one that made the change there. It was simply some information, some education. So yes, education, maybe some encouragement, give him the responsibility, that made a difference. I had someone else not too long ago, I was working with a 20-year-old young adult, um, dealing with some issues of loss, some transitions in his life. And uh, so his mood was down, and understandably so, as any of us going through some changes or transitions, uh, it, was, it was deflated. But he had 
I said, well, let's have you go get a physical exam, you know, just to make sure there's nothing medical going on. I want to rule out all that. I always want to rule out medical first. And they did some blood work on him. Uh, his, let's see, his, his liver functions were elevated. He had blood, high blood pressure and he had just these chronic GI issues. That was the reason that I thought, we need to get you to your primary doc. So for the blood work to show elevated liver enzymes in a young adult and high blood pressure in someone in their early 20s, something's going on here. When I start doing the assessment around nutrition, it's all processed foods, it's all takeout, um, you know, the McDonald's, the Burger King, <laughs> just the pizzas. and. I said, what about fruits and vegetables? No, I don't really eat that. How about a salad? Do you ever do it? No, I don't do that. So I asked him, I said, look, would you be willing to do some research on your own? I told him about forks over knives. I asked him to think about, uh, to watch Supersize Me. Do you remember the Morgan Spurlock documentary Mm -hmm. with the Burger King and all those elevated liver enzymes? And so he watched that and he said, I think there might be a connection. (laughs) So I thought, well, that's wonderful. It's not me telling him he found it on his own, right? That's ideal. So, uh, so he, he began making some changes and um, I, I, I haven't seen him uh, recently. So I'm hoping to hear that there's going to be some improvement in that blood work. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we're seeing these chronic diseases developing so much earlier in these young people. You know, they say by age 10, you know, 100% of American kids has fatty streaks laid down for, you know, the atherosclerosis, that increased risk for heart disease and stroke. But that's very powerful. I've seen fatty liver, elevated liver enzymes is in young children, you know, 11 years old. Um, but you're exactly right. We changed all diet. We changed their diet. The whole family changed, you know, lost weight, feel better, running girls on the run. I mean, just some amazing things. But what I really like about your story is how you were empowering the kids. And what's going to happen is this becomes one of those memories, like you're saying about the grandmother or the memory of a deceased relative who supported you. So now they have this memory of, I empowered myself. I was in control of what I put in my mouth, which had consequences of my emotions, my actions, which led me down the path of you know, being depressed and people saying I might need medications, but now it's like, but I could take care of it myself. Wow. That is huge. Especially in this world now of, you know, people having, you know, trigger warnings and having to have soft, you know, rooms that they can go hide in because they don't want to be, you know, dealt with the, uh, you know, harsh realities of the world. Um, you know, that's why I really liked about Carolyn Miller's book of getting grit. It was like, come on guys, you know, let's give you, let's give our kids some tools to really function well and thrive in this world. Don't, you know, don't, you know, you know, covet them and put them in this little hole. And then when they are on their own, they're, they're at risk for so many things. So yeah, I think that's, that's awesome. I love empowering young people. Wow. They're the ones who are going to influence their own friends, right? When they start differently or the questions start coming up. So yeah, I think that that's important as well. And, and the yeah. rules exercise as well, it's particularly depression, anxiety. You know as well as I, there's all kinds of studies out there looking at, uh, you know, the SSRI medications, antidepressant medications and exercise. And after six months, you know, baseline mood improves. And then suddenly, 
you know, you, you take the uh, medication away and their mood crashes. And those that were exercising, they maintain that elevated, you know, serotonins and happiness yeah absolutely and it lasts you know what they found is that when you exercise the serotonin levels actually stay elevated for up to eight hours so if you let's say you exercise in the morning you're getting morning sunlight between like six and seven so you're hitting you know the pineal gland and the brain that's Mm -hmm. shutting down the melatonin which is responsible for the serotonin right melatonin is the precursor to serotonin and you're exercising this is one of my prescriptions for people with depression so let's get you outside if you can, at least in sunlight, in a room that has natural sunlight, some yeah. type of exercise early in the morning. So you have that right, you know, lux and let's see what we can do. And I've had really good success. People coming off medications they've been on for 30 years. Isn't that significant? I mean, that is just, I mean, you know, for example, in a traditional practice, you have someone come in, you have 15 minutes or less with someone. Yeah. That's the first problem. Um, but they come in and they're saying they're depressed. You're like, okay, you're depressed, but you might give them some type of, uh, scale or, you know, the nine, the seven or nine question test to say like how severe is their depression or anxiety. And then all you're doing that is because you have to meet certain metrics for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, they're not looking at it as a tool to monitor medication. Typically not, typically not. Um, what happened, you prescribe the medicine, say, see you in two weeks or four weeks or whatever, and we'll either increase or decrease or add another medication. I mean, that is a typical how you practice to treat, or you might send them to a therapist, which is, you know, great. I love behavioral ther- health therapists or, you know, licensed social workers, someone in the office with the family practice. I spent lots of time in their office when they, we did have access to them um, just because they were very powerful. Um, but then you also look at natural alternatives and I'm not saying all natural alternatives are the best, trust me there, but this one had really good science is the use of saffron. The spice has been shown to work as well as Prozac. So I would tell people, you know, this isn't going to have any side effects. It works as well as Prozac. And I found that young women and menopausal women, they respond really well to it. And we use it for a period of time. We get them exercise and we get them out in the sun. We get them doing those things lifestyle wise that we know that will help. And we're able to take them off of that without going to you know, traditional prescribed medications. So, and so for the listeners that may not be aware, how would they use the saffron? Just include so, it as a spice in their cooking? You could do that, or you can actually buy it in capsules. Oh. And I would just take it as prescribed however you buy it. Um, Dr. Joel Furman on drfurman.com has a really good... Um, he has a link under vitamins of the saffron that he likes to use, and that's where I distract people. Um, yeah, so that, you know, those those are rare that I would recommend certain supplements for things, but I, I would use like turmeric, for example, in your cooking to help with anti, you know, inflammation, make sure you include the black pepper, yeah. um, using ground flaxseed, and, you know, there's different things um, to help with certain factors. Like, for example, I put people on a higher dose of omega-3s if they're depressed as well. Um, so there's there's lots of different studies, and science is pretty sound. People do well. And then we start backing off on things and see how they do. But if they can thrive without the prescription medications that have these side effects and the cost money, and uh, it's just so much better. It's just so much better. Not and, saying that traditional medicine doesn't have a place because it does. Right. Obviously, I'm an I'm a MD. Uh, absolutely 100%. But there's so many, 80% of our chronic diseases could improve with the lifestyle, with this mindfulness practice. So there's just, you know, people being aware of who we are as humans, but 
Yes, go ahead. What were you going to say? When I, when I sit with a patient and, you know, we're uh, developing a treatment plan together, always together, the goal is going to be what is it that that patient wants? And then my role is to really help them move towards whatever their particular goal is. Um, we might talk about, you know, medication is definitely one way to go. I want to make sure that they know that. But I also want to say, look, at, there's some other ways too. And would you be interested in? And so I'll introduce it that way and talk about, you know, um, these lifestyle prescriptions around nutrition and exercise. So what do you think just about trying to help folks get connected with others so they're not alone or isolated? Find a walking right. partner, you know, be able to have a friend or go to a gym. And if you don't have that, could you join a fitness class or a, a yoga class, for example, whether you're around other people? So at my own place of work at Evergreen here in Buffalo, uh, on our lunch break, I've just organized a small group of people. And on our lunch break, we'll go and we'll go and take a walk. Uh, and not too far from us, we're in a downtown setting. There's a tall building. It's got 28 floors. So once a week, we'll go down there as a group, a group, to be able to just walk up all 28 flights of stairs to the top to this observatory. But again, we're doing it in connection, and it creates a uh, not just that felt sense of connection, but that creates just a good feeling, right? You get mm -hmm. to know your coworkers in a different way. It's motivating. It feels good. So yep. the idea of social connection is so important. You know, and I, that's what I kind of like about, like, for example, uh, like the million step challenge that I organized at the previous hospital. I was like, okay, over the summer, I had 35 uh, people from our hospital doing this challenge. They would send me their weekly reports and we put it on there and we know, so that was fun too, even though you may not be physically with them, but you're yeah. still connecting. There's something you're looking forward to connection, but then, you know, they were, they would pair up and go walking or do different things. So you're exactly right. I, you know, I always encourage people to say, okay, so what is a hobby? What is something that you enjoy? Do you go to church? Do you, you know, when you go out to eat, who do you go with? Who's your neighbors? You know, very rarely I find someone who does not have some type of at least one social connection that they could utilize for yeah. some positive change. Or create one. Or create one, exactly. Those people, typically, I make sure that they see that therapist very quickly because mm -hmm. I feel that they've self-induced isolation is one of my what I found to be the biggest red flag as far as risk for suicide and other harmful activities, you know, alcoholism and such. But, um, yeah, we have to be intuitive as to or mindful of what the patient wants. You're exactly right. They need to lead us, but we're just here to kind of help guide them. You yeah, know? You're so right. but, yeah. You know, they want to travel down the, uh, the Grand Canyon to see the Colorado river. We're here to say, well, we won't go in August. Let's plan for February and let's go this way on the donkey, start from the south or north, you know, the different rims and we'll go down this way and turn right instead of left. So that's just kind of where we are, but we're still going to get up where you are. We're going to get you there more safely. So I think that's how we have to think of it. I think that's so wise. Yeah, you're giving them the information. They can make the decisions, but at least they have the information. So, right. You know, and yeah. bringing us back to the positive psychology very quickly, it's naming the positive things that somebody is doing. You're acknowledging, you're validating, and that can be reinforcing just in and of itself. So even just the small things, you know, mm -hmm. quote, small,
just acknowledging and say, you are amazing. Like, you know? Yep. Yep. I, I have done more high fives with patients. So what happens when I have patients who are allowing me to be on this journey of improved lifestyle, the first thing they do when they come in for an appointment is I literally ask them what went well. Tell me about your successes. And that's how we start our appointment because that makes it very powerful. It reinforces those good um, emotions. They see me as an ally. And what's cool is you continue to give them hope. You're going to push them a little further. It's like, okay, I walked a mile every day last week. Let's try a mile and a quarter or whatever their goal is, you know, but you know, I'm just trying to lead them. But if you can start that positive before and in the beginning, just like, you know, um, Dr. Marty Sullivan and he, I was listening to a talk he did and he's kind of the father of positive psychology. He was in Australia teaching these kiddos and or teaching teachers in the school how to do this. And they were, I guess they, they did the entire school um, positive psychology. I, I don't recall the exact name of the school, but what they were doing is the kids, instead of like in second grade, you know, you're coming in and the teacher, instead of saying, bring out your paper, we're going to start, you know, learning, boom, boom, boom. It was, they would go, excuse me, go around and say, okay, what went well in your day yesterday? You know, oh, and yeah. let's celebrate, you know, let's celebrate those good things. So let's start this day on a positive note. And I think there's that collective like, wow, this went well, this went well. So what does yeah. this kids do now? So now they think that their world is more positive. It's not, it's not a world of depression or hearing patient, you know, parents arguing. It's like, wow, there's all these things. My friends, their life's going great. This is my positive. You know, I think that's, that really feeds on itself. I think it's extremely powerful. And bring that back it's, to mindfulness. You're bringing, you're helping them redirect their attention to there are successes that I am accomplishing in this world Maybe I'm not, you know, so wrong or broken in so many ways. I will ask what you just did. The exception question is something I love. When people come in and talk about their depression or their anxiety, I listen to it. And I think really people have been socialized and probably my field contributes to this. People come in and they just sit down and they start talking about their problems. You know, Mm -hmm. at five years old, this happened. At eight years old, this happened. At 10 years old, this happened. And those may be very significant and important things to pay attention to, and we may need to do some work around those, but it's very problem-focused. So I will listen to the narrative that they bring in about who they believe they are as a result of X, Y, or Z happening in their lives, but I will just stop and ask, and tell me about the exceptions to these moments, the moments where you feel more connected to the others, the moments where you're not depressed or you are less depressed. Tell me about the exceptions and what's going on in those moments. What are you doing differently? What are you saying differently? Who are you hanging out with differently? You know, you just want to, like you just said, help them identify that they are much more than just this collection of symptoms. Right. So, or collection of problems. You problem. know, You know, people are, you know, in my own past in my own experience, that's how I got over some issues was a matter of looking at, well, where were those things that I did well? So gave me the confidence, like I actually can do those things and do them well and, you know, share those with other people. And so that's, and that became really contagious. So I think that was fun is that I see patients who, I remember one patient in Grand Junction, oh my goodness, is an older couple, but the husband, she was like ready to go. Like she was in, if you look at that ready for change model, she was like, I'm ready. Let's do it. Well, he was looking at me. 
I'll never forget. He looked at me like I was an alien from outer space saying, you needed a whole food plant-based diet. You have these issues, blah, blah, blah. I spent well over half an hour. I definitely run late. And actually, I think it was right before lunch. And so I, I had time. So those poor souls that got my right before lunch, because I'm like, I'll stay here with you an hour and a half. I don't care. But what was funny was um, by the end of the conversation, he's like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. So he did, and he did amazing, got off medications, lost all this weight. Um, and what was funny was he became a zealot, man. He was like evangelizing everyone about plant-based. He goes, my sister won't do this. I don't understand. I'm like, <laughs> I was like, did you see yourself like two months ago? I'm like, you're the exact same way. So it was really funny how that can change very quickly when you empower people to like, this is power. This is what I can do. And then it's just, it's so much fun. I'm like, go do the work. I've, I've done my job. You, you you're on your, <laughs> that's a happy story. Oh yeah. And there's lots of those. You're, you have someone who lost 40 pounds and no longer cries when she goes to try on dresses. And now she wants to teach classes on a plant-based diet to a Spanish population. I mean, these, there's some incredible stories. Um, full circle moment. Yep. Oh, totally. The same thing that brought so much uh, pain to somebody ends up being the same darn thing that that's their new platform that they have reinvented their life around. That, that is, yep. that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly it. And you know, it's been an hour and I've taken up your time. Um, I know I appreciate your morning, but it's, a, it's a, probably a great place to, to end this. I have a feeling we'll be doing this again. Um, Absolutely. So, um, you know, I like to end each podcast with acknowledgement and especially for people like you who really, I think, do the tough work. For me, you know, I, when I was working at the Health Oasis with Dr. Furman and we had all these, I mean, amazing therapists. Oh my goodness. These people are so talented. I was, I was thinking, wow, my job is so easy. I tell people how to eat, go shopping. I take medications away. They love me. But those therapists, they're doing the real work. So, you know, that is the hard work. Between the ears is the tough stuff, man. That is, I learned so much in the, the several months that I was there. So thank you for everything you do and your work. And um, I'm sure your patients are very grateful. And people here, I will put the links of how they can reach you should they, you know, live in the Buffalo area and, and want to partake in that. And, uh, you know, I um, thank you for everybody you've helping. And I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff here that people can take back and apply in their own lives. So thank you. Thank you so much, Lori, and for all the work that you're doing as well. I, I appreciate that. I think one of the things that has really drawn me to your work in particular is your transparency and your mm -hmm. sense of authenticity. You can tell that you walk this talk and you bring your heart to the work that you do. I told you that when I met you at Plantstock, that is what makes a difference. And when we're sitting with our clients, it doesn't matter what somebody's particular discipline is. You know, are they more cognitive behavioral? Are they more psychodynamic? Are they more gestalt or solution focused? It doesn't matter. It's the, the studies show it's the relationship that heals. And when you're willing to stay more than 15 minutes, even 30 minutes or more with that particular family, they knew that somebody cared about them. And that's what right. makes a difference. Connection heals. If we continue this conversation another time, the other thing, this is my new bully pulpit, is we have to bring people into a sense of community and connection. There's too much okay. isolation out there. As we know, with 3%, maybe now there's 5 or more percent, you said people eating more plant-based or vegan. 
Mm-hmm. There still is a lot of isolation out there that people can feel. And um, so that's my new interest and focus about how to develop and build communities and empower people to be able to make those connections. Because that's how right. they're going to these changes. I love it. Yeah, we can definitely talk about how, how to build community in your own life. Yep. We should definitely, we'll have to set up a date um, once okay. we get done off here to do that. I think that's fabulous. So thanks again. And uh, you're exactly right though with the relationship with the patient because I've had more than one patient say, Dr. Marvis, I just really feel like you actually care. Even though maybe I didn't have the answer or I would, you know, I had some difficult news to share with them. That's the one thing that they really, truly um, took away from the encounter. And it's not even that I necessarily healed them. It was just that they, they had an ally in this journey. And um, so I think that's really cool. That yeah. was really cool. They, so, may forget, but, they may forget what we say. They may not agree with what we say, but they will not forget how we help them feel in that moment. So. Yep, exactly. And if you're bringing them to the moment too, because I think that's, that's a special skill, actually bringing someone who may be all over the place and say, like, okay, come back down here. Let's, let's focus on what we're talking about at this moment. So absolutely. Cool. Thank you. So Thank you, Thank you right. Tom.